Thank you, Jenny. The door was propped open when the reporter arrived. It was last October. It was Charlie Brennan of KMOX. He was visiting a Syrian family, refugee family, one mile north of this church on Hodiamont. The door was propped open because even in October, the weather was swelteringly hot. It was also propped open because it didn't actually lock. There was no electricity in the unit because the landlord hadn't thought to hook it up. And they couldn't communicate with the landlord because the landlord didn't speak Arabic. As he looked around, he saw an apartment complex that was filled with rats and mice and roaches where there were gunshots every night as he communicated with this refugee family just north of here using an app on on his iPad. He learned that they were afraid to go out at night because the gunshots in the neighborhood reminded them of Syria the war that they had fled. Just 10 days after he visited this family, four young Syrian teenagers were beaten up, beaten badly, one block north of the housing complex by four other youth from the neighborhood that they didn't know, and they still don't know why they beat them up. St. Louis is a city that is culturally very, very rich filled with beautiful architecture, with a thriving economy, a wealth of cultural resources, amazing, beautiful people made in God's image, and yet a city filled with brokenness and sorrow, with poverty, with fear, with racism, with hate, with privilege, and with pride. It's a city that struggles in many ways. Our school district in the city struggles. Our school districts in much of St. Louis County struggle. There are racial and socioeconomic disparities, uh, crime, there's violence, there are political shenanigans all of the time. We have a divided region politically, structurally, relationally, racially, socioeconomically, educationally. There are children born without a dad. And even those with dads and with great privilege can suffer alone with great loneliness, isolation, abusive relationships, physical, emotional, psychological bondage. Is there hope for St. Louis? Is there hope for the city? We're going to look at the account recorded in the book of the Acts of the Apostles by a Gentile named Luke. It's the account in Acts chapter 8 of the very first non-Jewish city to receive the gospel. The gospel went through a deacon named Philip to a city in Samaria. Samaria being that non-Jewish region to the north of Israel, populated by half-Jewish, half-Gentile people educationally inferior, spiritually inferior, from a Jewish perspective, racially inferior, people who hated the Jews and who the Jews respondingly hated. And yet this Jewish follower of Jesus ends up, because of persecution, going to a great city in Samaria. And we hear what happens when the gospel reaches the city. It's Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8. Follow along with me in your pew Bible. It's page 1704. It's the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. 
those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. And when the crowds heard Philip and they saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and and cripples were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. When the gospel comes to this first sizable non-Jewish city, what happens? First of all, we see the Christians have an incredible impact on the city. In this case, it's just one in whatever entourage he had. We see physical renewal. There were people who were paralyzed, people who were lame, who were healed of their disabilities when the gospel came to this city. And, and while you or I may not have the miraculous gifts that came with, with that apostolic community, nevertheless... Uh, there is a physical expression of the gospel, a physical expression of the love of God, a physical expression of the great healing by Jesus that is to come in the coming age when Jesus makes everything new. It's a part of the promise of God that we carry the compassion, the care, and the support of Christ to our city. You see a physical impact when the gospel comes to a city. Our calling as agents of Christ, when we talk about wanting you actively serving somewhere, that can be in our nursery, that can be running the sound booth, that can be all sorts of ways, but it can also be beyond the walls of the church, actively serving to, to, to develop a relationship with an, a, a refugee family, to, to adopt as a community group, to adopt a refugee family through the International Institute or some other source, to, to be able to to manifest the love of Jesus, giving in a way that you're not expecting to receive anything in return, though you may, but giving because God has called you to love your city. It may be working with, with the shelter at Grace and Peace or, or, or with the food pantry there. It could be any way. It could be tutoring kids in the inner city. It could be any way of actually investing the gospel resources that God has given you into this city, into this region. There are three million people in St. Louis who will perish without an intervention by Jesus. And you are his hands. You are his feet. You are the physical expression of his love to take what he's given you and invest it, not just in yourself, not just in your family, not just in your church, but to invest it in your city, in your neighborhood, in people you don't know, who you don't have an investment in. That's the vision we have here. We see physical renewal, but we also see spiritual renewal. You see it described in the account of people who were delivered from demons, quite literal and figurative. Uh, the bondage being broken as people re-encounter God through Jesus, through the gospel. And that brings something else. We see physical renewal, spiritual renewal, but we also see great joy. There was great joy in that city when the gospel came. When the Christians came and began talking about the Christ, there was great joy. And I long for great joy in St. Louis. The joy of lives that have been set free. The joy seen on faces that have experienced significant deliverance from, from addictive patterns, from unhealthy relationships. The joy of that new believer when they first realize their sins are all forgiven. The radiance that comes when people know that they are loved, loved by God and loved by his people. 
the eyes filled with hope as they realize that death will not have the last word, but that Christ has defeated death forever. Jesus will make sure of it. The joy of worshipers who experience a new sense of Christ's victory over hell, the praises on their lips, the praises in their hearts. There are three million people in this region, friends, and the burden of my heart is that three million people would bow their knee and worship Jesus and receive his grace and know his love and be filled with great joy, the great joy that comes when the gospel reaches the city. There will be great joy in St. Louis when God does that through his church. It's the incredible impact the gospel has when it transforms a city. But, second point, when we talk about the power of the gospel transforming a city, when we talk about having an impact on this city, American Christians invariably get it wrong because we're in such a politically saturated, politically polarized context in the United States right now. When we think that when we talk about having an impact on the city, that that means an impact from the top down, getting our people into the White House, getting our people into the Congress, getting our people on the courts, getting our people in the mayor's office, and our people on the board of aldermen, so that we Christians can get power, and through that political power, we can top down, make all the non-Christians act like Christians. And it's the same on the right, it's the same on the left, it's no difference. It's all this notion that the way you change a culture is from the top down. And certainly God calls Christians into government. He calls them into public service as public servants. But the impact, second point that we see here, is the impact is subversive. The impact is from the bottom up, you know. Philip doesn't go there and start a political crusade and try to get all of his people heading up the city. No, he goes and he finds the lowest of the low, people who are paralyzed, people who are helpless. He tells them about Jesus. He actively serves them. He crosses barriers of race and ethnicity and education just by going to that city. This is like a Palestinian going to Tel Aviv to tell people about Jesus. You know, it's, it's impossible. But he, as a Jew, is going to Samaritans, to a city in Samaria, crossing that racial barrier, crossing that ethnic barrier, crossing that educational and religious barrier in order to serve them from the bottom up, in order to be their servant, and carrying a message, proclaiming the Christ to set them free, and giving attention to the marginalized. It's, it's the opposite vision of the American consumer-driven church. The American consumer-driven church, the vision is that you all are basically religious consumers, and you are looking for a church that's going to give you the products that you want, that's going to give you the the worship that you want, that's going to give you the services you want, that's going to give you the programs you want. And And if the church, as a consumer product, gives you the services you want, then you will buy it by your attendance, by your worship, maybe by your giving. And it's incredibly self-focused godless vision of the church. It's the opposite of what we see in the pages of the New Testament. In the pages of the New Testament, the church exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members, for those who don't yet know the grace of Christ, for our neighbors, for our associates, to be a community that exists not just for ourselves, but to be a community of love for other people, that they might know the grace of Jesus. Friends, this has always been the vision of God for his people. When God chose Abraham at the very beginning, 
numbered him as the beginning, the father of all the faithful. He said to Abraham, this isn't for you. This is so that all the nations can be blessed through you. When God sent Israel into exile in Babylon, a pagan city filled with idolatry and violence and greed and hate, he didn't say, now be ye separate and don't go in there. They were camped all around the city, and he said, no, I want you to leave the camps, and I want you to go into Babylon. I want you to to build houses there. I want you to have kids there. I want you to invest in relationships there. I want you to grow and prosper and multiply as my people in the city, in the big, dark, scary, pagan city. I want you right in the middle of it, loving it, because it's not about you. Pray, he says, and work for the peace and the prosperity even of Babylon that we as God's people exist for their sake. I've shared before the account of the plague of Cyprian in 260 AD. Uh, 200 years after Philip visited Samaria, Christians were still a a persecuted religious minority in the Roman Empire. Um, Cyprian described, though, the plague that came to the cities of Rome in the year 260. He described it, he said, the intestines of the victims are shaken with continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire with the infected blood. In some cases, the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of the disease and the putrefaction. In many cases, Cyprian went on to say, blindness and deafness would ensue. At the height of this epidemic in the year 260, it's estimated to have killed 5,000 people every day just in the city of Rome alone. Among the victims were two Roman emperors, Hostilian and Claudius II Gothicus. The effects were just as extreme elsewhere in the empire. In the second city of the empire, Alexandria, Egypt, as much as two-thirds of the population died that year. Dionysius of Alexandria describes it this way. He said, the pagans at the first onset of the disease pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of the contagion of the fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Ancient plagues were horrible. Centuries earlier, Thucydides had described the plagues in the city of Athens. He said they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. He writes, the bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of dead bodies of people who had died inside of them, for the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to every rule of religion or law, No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence, he writes. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing, whether one worshipped them or not, when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. The historian Rodney Stark comments that those with means fled the city. When the Antonine plague hit, hit Rome, the famous classical physician Galen far from helping those who were afflicted, escaped Rome as fast as he could, retiring to his country estate in Asia Minor until the danger receded. But the Christians in 260 stayed in the city. 
And at the height of the great epidemic, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic efforts of the Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring not only for their own sick, but the sick of the pagans. He writes, the Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely joyful, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. He writes, many in nursing or curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of the Christians lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith in Jesus, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Observers noted the heavy mortality of the epidemic. They wrote, there is not a house in which there is not one dead. How I wish it had been only one. But while that epidemic had not passed over the Christians, uh, sources suggest that the pagans fared much, much worse. Its full impact, they wrote, fell on the pagans. See, the Christian community nursed its sick and dying, even spared nothing in, in preparing the dead for proper burial, while the pagans, in order to escape the plague, threw their dying out into the street so that they wouldn't catch the disease themselves. Stark writes, How much could it have mattered? Not even the best of Greco-Roman science knew anything to do to treat these epidemics other than to avoid all contact with those who had the disease. Even if the Christians did not obey the injunction to minister to the sick, what could they actually do to help them? At the risk of their own lives, they could, in fact, save an immense number of lives. William McNeil points out, when all normal services break down, quite elementary nursing will greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing. Modern medical experts believe that conscientious nursing, even without any medication for the plague, could cut the mortality rate by two-thirds or even more. See, the Christians willingly exposed themselves to the virus knowing that they might be dying for their friend or even dying for their enemies. And the pagans never forgot it. They never forgot who it was who had loved them back in 260. By the year 300, a tenth of the Roman Empire believed in Jesus, even though it was a persecuted minority. And that population of followers of Jesus in the late Roman era, pre-Christian era, was concentrated overwhelmingly in the cities, the cities that the Christians had gone to with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. Some cities were already a majority Christian, particularly in Asia Minor. Uh, Even though Christianity was banned, it was illegal, it was at times vehemently persecuted. And yet the Christians influenced Rome, not from the top, not from above. They influenced Rome from below. By the year 350, most people were already at least naming Jesus as their savior, even though it wasn't the the official religion. It was legal. But Christianity spread, and it spread because its impact was from the bottom up as Christians put themselves down on the floor to wash their neighbor's feet, to die for their neighbors, 
It's not an easy thing to do. It's difficult. We have our own issues. If you're like me, you've got your own issues to deal with. I know I got mine, and I got my own selfishness and my own fear, and I just want to take care of my own people and the people who matter to me relationally or psychologically or, or financially. So what does it take to be able to die for your pagan neighbor? What does it take to be able to nurse their sick knowing you're bringing the contagion into your own home and putting your own family at risk? What is it like to actually risk your family in order to obey the call of Jesus to love those who are lost? How is it possible? Where'd they learn it? Last point, friends, they learned it from Jesus who washed their feet when they were dirty. They learned it from Jesus who willingly died for them when they were his enemy so that they could go and do likewise. They had been loved by Christ so that they in turn could love. You can't get down on your knees and wash people's feet unless you know that Jesus is even lower than you down on his knees washing your feet. God is the helper of Israel. Jesus is the culmination, the ultimate divine self-giving, the ultimate expression of the God of love himself. That's Jesus. He loved them. And notice the message that Philip was proclaiming in this city. Even as he healed their sick, even as he served them, even as he crossed racial barriers and identified with the weakest of the weak and the lowest of the low for their healing, the message that he carried was not a theological system. It was not a plan of salvation. It was not a self-help system. It was not a moral code or a 12-step method. It was not about self-improvement. It was not even a religion. What did he preach? It says he preached Christ. He preached the Christ. He preached the person. It's not a plan, but a person. Jesus, Jesus who died for his enemies, died to save, shed his blood to forgive all of your sins and to ultimately heal your diseases at the resurrection. Jesus who rose and ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus who stands before his church now. What are you doing with Jesus? Where are you with Jesus? With his absolute claim over your life, You know, you can go to church, you can do the religion thing, you can get involved in groups and serve all sorts of people, but friends, what are you doing with Jesus? He is our message. He is all we have. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the very face of God. He is the very love of God. He is the one through whom all things were made and for whom you were made. What are you doing with Jesus? He loves you. He proclaimed the Christ. His office is open right now. There's a seat with your name on it. I'm talking to the Christians. Do you hear him calling your name? Is he the center of your life? Is he your salvation and your hope? They they could sacrifice everything because God had sacrificed everything for them. Our message isn't about what a great church we are. Stick around a little while. You'll figure out lots of reasons why that's the case. Our message is Jesus. Our message is a person. Jesus looked on you in your worst failings and your worst shame, and he went to the cross to purchase you for God. He took your sin on himself, and he bore the consequences for what I had done and for what you had done. That's why Jesus is still pictured with wounds on his hand and feet, even after his resurrection. You think, oh, that would all heal up. Jesus still says after his resurrection, touch my hands, touch my feet. 
See, the, the wounds are still there. It's the wounds of love, the wounds of one who sacrifices himself for the people in whom he delights. There's a guy named Wayne Cordero who tells a story about a church member named Bully. Despite his name, Bully was a gentle man, but he got his name for barking orders at construction sites. And one day, Cordero mentions he's got all of these scars on his hands and on his feet, huge bits of scar tissue. And he asks Bully, what happened there? And Bully t- tells the story. It was back in 1960s on the big island of Hawaii. His family lived in a village right on the beach. And he remembers this one day in which, in which the water went so far out they couldn't see the ocean anymore. And so the kids all ran out, and he was grown up. He was an adult. He ran out with the kids, and they were playing on coral reefs that had been submerged their entire lives. They didn't understand how the beach could suddenly be miles wide. And they didn't understand that it was the first wave, the building wave of the tsunami that was getting ready to come. And when the waves came, 60-foot-tall waves came crashing over the village, he managed to make his his way back to his own village, and he found his own house, and inside his wife was crying uncontrollably, and he asked her, Honey, what's going on? What's wrong? And she says, Robbie is missing. I can't find Robbie. Robbie was their six-month-old little boy who had been asleep in the house when the ocean raged across their village. And so in a panic... Uh, bully went all over the village. He began jumping on, on top of roofs because the waves were still coming, l- walking over debris and, and pieces of metal and bits of houses that had been turned upside down. And then finally he hears a cry. And he knows that cry. If you're a mother, if you're a father, some of you can distinguish the cry of your child a hundred yards away from all the other kids. He knew it was Robbie, and he went and ran as fast as he could, and he began digging, and underneath a mattress, he found Robbie sitting there crying out for him. And he got Robbie, and he went back home, and he got his wife, and they worked their way through the water to high ground. And as they reached high ground and could finally catch their breath, his wife looks at him, and she says, Bully, your hands, your feet. And he looked down, and there was blood pouring down both arms, blood on both feet, blood on the ground around him, even though he had been wearing flip-flops as he ran in search of his child, as he ran in search of the son he loved. He had been walking on cut glass and upturned uh, screws and nails and construction debris, and he hadn't even noticed he had been puncturing his hands and feet. He didn't care, because it was the price of loving and rescuing the one he loves. Friends, look at Jesus. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. They're bleeding for you. The wounds are still there, even after the resurrection. And they're speaking to you of the love that he has of the cost he was willing to pay, even absorbing the Father's wrath beyond the physical nails and the spear in his side, the marks of his love for you, who will rescue you, who has rescued you, who will not live without you. Mary Nelson was a young girl, age 14, when her own mother committed suicide. You can imagine it, the questions it raises. Did she find the body? 
Was she the one who had to dial 911? What passed through her mind as she waited for police to arrive? She was completely alone at age 14. Mary Nelson, the one person she thought had loved her, had abandoned her in her despair. Surely there would be institutions, maybe foster homes at best, but Mary Nelson, age 14, was completely alone in the world. And yet Mary Nelson knew there was one thing she had. Boys really liked her. Men liked to look at her. And so she turned to the one thing she had, which was her body. And she started working the streets of New York City, selling herself to strangers. It was dirty work, disgusting work, but it kept her from being homeless. And then four years into it, when she was 18 years old, Mary heard that there was better pay for her line of work in Honolulu. And so she bought a ticket, hopped a jet, and went off to the place where there were always elderly tourists looking for a good time. Soon, as income came in every night, Mary was able to buy a nice condo. On one sense, she had it all. She had new cars, she had jewelry, she could travel, though sometimes she was struck by the risky side of the profession. Literally, she suffered beatings on occasion, she was assaulted, she was pushed around, she was treated like a piece of meat, and she was raped. Men used her, and then they left her. In her own words, she says this. She says there was so much horror that came with prostitution. You can imagine the emptiness, the fear in every encounter, wondering whether this client was going to be the crazy one who's been stalking her and sees her as an easy target. The present was not an easy life, and as Mary grew older and saw the lines in the mirror, she looked at her future with dread. And worse yet, Mary felt like everyone knew who she was. The shame she felt made her hide from encounters with what she called normal people. She was terrified of them. She felt judged by them, and so whenever she could, she would hide from them. And yet something changed when Mary was in her early 50s. She had gotten to know some people who were followers of Jesus. They weren't like religious people that she had known. There was something different. They were involved with something, maybe it was a church, she wondered. It was called Blue Water Mission in Honolulu, and they were the first normal people who did not judge her. They were the only people who didn't look at her and see a prostitute. They looked at her and they saw Mary. They were not ashamed of her. For whatever reason, they showed her compassion. And after time, some of them persuaded her to leave the streets and to try working at a restaurant they had started called Seed, Seed was a for-profit restaurant that was started by some members of this church, and it was designed to give a second chance at life, a second chance at work to people who might otherwise be unemployable. Some of them were felons. Some of them had worked the streets like Mary. Some of them couldn't be employed because of things in their past or their lack of job skills or their reputation. And so what Seed would do is they would pair them with a more advanced worker in one area until they could work independently. A news article focused on Mary, who at this point had been working at Seed for about a year. It was only the second job she'd had in her 53 years. Mary spent the first six months washing dishes in the back room at Seed because she wanted to be as far away from possible from the good people, in her words, by which she meant the customers. And so she hid in the back, washing her dishes. She says, I didn't want to deal with none of the humans. I was afraid of the rejection. 
or that people would judge me or they wouldn't trust me. But she started going to church at Blue Water Mission and she found that there were other people there who loved her, people who had their own issues, their own stories. No one there was perfect. No one had it together. Everybody had a story because everyone was broken and yet they were all so infinitely loved by their God. She was intrigued. She was drawn to it. She felt like she could actually fit in with these people. To them, she wasn't her past. They didn't treat her like a project. She was just Mary, and Mary felt loved for the first time in her life, loved by the last people on earth from which she would have expected it, loved by people at church. And along the way, she found the love of Jesus She found the love of Jesus through the love of his church. Nelson noted that what she makes now in a month at seed, she used to make in one night on the streets. But she adds, she says this, she says, you can't buy what I'm going through right now. I get to be the person I was never able to be. And I get to help other people without someone trying to take advantage of me. We have a picture of Mary Nelson. Can we get that picture? That's Mary now. When Mary's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends, so many of which were working the streets herself. She invited them to seed uh, to, for, for dinner and so that she could meet her coworkers. And she also wanted them to see that there are people in the world who won't judge them. She said, I wanted to let these girls know that there are options, she said, that if grandma can do it, they can do it too. That's Jesus. She says, you can't buy what I'm going through. I'm on cloud nine. I never thought that I'd be in Hawaii, Waikiki, and be the person I am now. I've been loved. She still lives in an apartment right on Waikiki. And she still walks the same streets she used to work for 30 years. But she says, while it would be easy to walk out her front door and find a customer, she says, it's not going to happen, she says. She credits the followers of Jesus who loved her and helped her and walked with her as she sought to break free. Recently, Mary Nelson took some time off work from her job to go on a mission trip to the Philippines to work with prostitutes in Manila. She says, I want these women to know there's hope. To them, I say, you can change. There are people out there, Christians, that really want to help you. You've got to have faith. You've got to trust Jesus. You've got to try. You've got to believe. Just, just like you went out there and took a chance on the streets every single night, now you've got to take a chance with Jesus. You've got to take a chance on this. Trusting, taking a chance, just like you had to trust every time you went out there. So many times before, she says, only this time, you've got to take a chance and trust Jesus. Friends, thank you. He's the one man who will never take advantage of you. He's the one man you've been looking for all this time. He's the only one who truly loves you absolutely, completely, self-sacrificially, counter-conditionally. He's the one whose approval you need, and he's the one who freely gives it. The one man who's willing to die for you, the one man who did just that, Jesus with outstretched arms, stretched wide, his hands and feet showing the mark and the embrace of a true and liberating love, the one who knows everything you've done, everything you are, everything you've chosen, everything you've embraced, and yet the one who chooses to embrace prostitutes and sinners like us, he's been doing it for thousands of years, the only one who actually clothes you with his eyes, the one through whom all things were made, who embraces you 
with a love for sinners, a love for the outcast, and a love for the city. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have loved us and you have loved the city. I pray now, Lord, that by your spirit and through this sacrament, you would strengthen us to be your hands and feet, to love the city as you have loved it, to serve it and love it from below as servants and not from above as power-hungry, controlling, manipulative religious people. Lord, you have loved us. You influenced me and changed my life because, because you died for me, because you got down on your knees and washed my feet. You influenced me and won my heart from below, Lord Jesus. Help us to go and do likewise for the sake of this great city you love. We now consecrate to you this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would preach the gospel to us, your family. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Then lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise because he is worthy of all glory and honor because he is the one who got down on his feet and washed you and made you clean. If you're a Christian and you've experienced the washing and cleansing of the blood of Jesus, if you have believed him and said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you, and if you've been baptized into his church, any church where Jesus is worshipped, then this sacrament is for you. You just need to be a sinner ready to come to Jesus as the one who rescues us.